Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org. Let's look at chapter 16. We actually have this warning about false teaching from verses 17 to 20. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. So last week we looked at the greeting. All those people that he mentions. 24 by name, 26 total that he greets. Pretty amazing. Paul had friends all over the Roman Empire. Many of them ended up in Rome who were with him in other places. So he completely changes gears now and goes from sweet greetings to warning. So let's, let's read this. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught and avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus, our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil." The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Seems like the end of the epistle there, but it's not. He's got a few more things to say, and we'll consider that, God willing, next next week. So, It almost seems like this warning is out of place. It's not. I believe it uh, transitions to this. But there have been some liberal commentators saying, this doesn't belong there. It should be somewhere else in chapter 15. But actually, just think about it for a moment. Why Paul might have changed and began to talk about false teaching and warning. He's just greeted all these people at Rome, and he has concluded this greeting by saying, all the churches of Christ greet you. Now, what churches is he talking about? If you go up a few verses, he's talking about the churches of the Gentiles that he had planted throughout the Roman Empire. And many of those churches had already come under the assault of false teaching. And he had to deal with them in his epistles. Galatians, for example. Colossians and others. I think Colossians was written after this one, so that would not apply. But Galatians was one of the early epistles. So it probably made Paul think, having these churches planted and being assaulted with false teaching that I'm going to warn the church at Rome as well, though I don't believe that they had the problem yet. 
Though there was some tension there, wasn't there, between the weak and the strong about the observance of days, the eating of food, and those things could have mushroomed into something bigger. Because the, the Judaizers who were going around, maybe they hadn't come to Rome yet with their teaching. And a lot of their teaching had to do with living under the law, living as a Jew. And that seemed to be somewhat the problem with the Jewish segment of the church at Rome. They were struggling with the application of the law still in their lives. So Paul has this warning. It's a fit warning. Have you been in any churches in the past where some false teaching took place? You know what it, ha- you know what it did to the church? The problems that it caused? You're going to find some parallels, no doubt, in Paul's words here about what you experience personally in the 21st century. So let's look at this. First of all, now the entire thing is not all about false teachers. Just the first two verses, actually. Verses 17 and 18. So we're going to look at that. He warns against false teachers there. Then he affirms them and exhorts them in verse 19. And then he has a prophecy, promise, and a prayer at the end. So this is how we're going to look at this passage. Look how it begins. I appeal to you. Now we've come across that before. Romans 12.1, same word. It's the idea of he's urging them. He's almost beseeching them. So Paul's, Paul's serious here in what he's going to say. He's not casual about false teaching. This is not a casual matter. When it, it requires a warning, churches need to be warned against it. He says, watch out for them. This is keep a sharp eye. Keep an eye peeled for them. Carefully notice, this is the idea of the word here, mark them out. Now he, he tells us very clearly how to identify a false teacher by what he says here about them. Let's look at his description of a false teacher. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those, first of all, who cause division. This is one of the classic hallmarks of a false teacher. That what he brings to a church causes, his doctrine is divisive, but what it leads to is argumentation and strife and disagreement within the church. In other words, it interrupts the unity of the church. It's divisive. It undermines the unity of the saints. That's the first thing he notices here. The very opposite of what the ministry is supposed to advance. Then he adds to the fact that it creates divisions, that it creates obstacles. Now, it's an interesting expression. This is the idea that it causes an occasion of stumbling. It scandalizes the church. There's something there in the teaching that trips people up. 
Again, it has a negative consequence. This is what Jesus said about false prophets. Beware of false prophets. They come to you as sheep, as wolves in sheep's clothing. But how do you identify a false prophet? You shall know them by their fruit. What does the teaching of a false prophet produce in the local church? It's it's all negative. No good comes from it. Possibly you could add this, what is most scandalous is the lifestyle of the false teacher. That really is a scandalous thing, because always the false teacher, he's living a life that does not agree with the life of the New Testament Christian. He's a phony somewhere, and you'll find it out eventually. Well, I have many come to light recently in the last couple of years and in the news certain pastors of certain big mega church churches. But now catch this. Here's, here's the crux. Not only is it divisive, not only does it cause stumbling, causes of offense, but he, the Apostle Paul says it is contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. The idea of being contrary is the idea that it's in opposition to. This is the meaning. That their teaching opposes the gospel that Paul taught them in the book that we're studying right here. What they have been taught by others. It's the opposite doctrine. And that is very much true of the teaching of the Judaizers. In other words, it's just not erroneous doctrine. You know, there are good men, good pastors who are teaching generally the truth, but they may be off a little bit in some areas. Like we have an example in Apollos, the very eloquent preacher that came to Corinth and ministered there. Aquila and Priscilla, they they took him aside because they noticed something was lacking in He wasn't way off in left field, but he was lacking in his understanding. And so this couple gave instruction to Apollos. They helped him. He was open to it. He received it. That's the mark of a real man of God. He's open to be corrected if he's off a little bit on something. And we're all off on something. Nobody has it 100% down the road. That's one thing, but the problem here with the false teachers, it's not just a little erroneous doctrine. It is heretical teaching that if one embraces it, he's going to suffer disastrous consequences, perhaps lose his soul over it. So this is why it's so important to be aware of false teaching. What does Paul say we're to do with them? How are we to treat them? No, he says avoid them. And that's probably the best counsel for church members in general. Now, in case you feel like you're able, you know the word of God well enough to enter into a dialogue with one of these persons and try to help them, go for it. It's like talking to a cultist, generally. But for most Christians, they should just avoid them. That is, have nothing to do with them, no compromise, and so on. 
Now, here's the reason why we need to avoid and shun false teachers. Look at what Paul says about them. This is how we know they're phony. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ. He says, categorically, they're not servants of Jesus, no matter what their profession is. Oh, I believe in Jesus. I'm, I'm his spokesperson. Oh, words are cheap. Anyone can say that. That doesn't mean that they're bona fide teachers of the truth and Christ's servants or messengers. Paul says they don't serve the Lord Jesus. But who do they serve then? Notice what he says. But their own appetites. In the original, their own stomachs. It's the same word that he uses in Philippians 3, speaking again of enemies of the cross, whose God is their belly or their stomach. Same, same idea. Now, I don't think he's referring to gluttony, per se. I think he's referring to the fact that these people are servants of their animal appetites. This is what they're given over to in reality. Notice how they how they work their way in to getting a hearing. This is something, Paul's language. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. The idea of smooth talking is uh, pleasant talking. It's, it's talking that's, uh, it's, a, it's their style of speaking that just like, it's polished, it's, it's captivating. This is how they dress up their heresy. The words that they use. There may be an eloquence there by their smooth talking and flattery. We all know what flattery is, but here in this place it's talking about words that are well chosen, but they're not true. And that's generally what flattery is. And this is what the false teachers are doing. They're using well-chosen words, but it's all false. It's fake. And those that they prey upon are the naive. This means the simple, the unsuspecting, the innocent in the church. The people that tend to be more who believe things that they're told without questioning there's many like that in the church not a, it's not a fault it's not a weakness necessarily but these are the people that are susceptible to false teaching so paul has to really lay it down as to how to identify them and why we need to shun them now verse 19 paul once again affirms the church at rome this is the third time he compliments them he does it in the first chapter, verse 8. He does it in chapter 15. Now he's going to compliment them again. And notice how he, how he says it. Verse 19. For your obedience is known to all. This is a great thing that was true of the Christians at Rome. They had a reputation as a church that kind of spread out throughout the world, being the capital of the empire, what goes on there is going to be known by many places outside of Rome. And Paul 
tells them that their obedience is known by all. What a, what a great compliment. I like how he puts it in Philippians chapter 2 to the church there at Philippi. He says, My beloved, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now also in my absence. Paul had the same confidence about the church that he planted in Philippi. Their obedience. Not just why he was around, but even when he's not there, they're still obedient. And here Paul is, writing from some distance away. He's never visited Rome, yet he knows that this group of people are obedient to who? Who are they obedient to? To the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the mark of the Christian. This is how we know who is saved and who's not saved. Who is in submission to the Lordship of Christ, who lives in obedience to Jesus Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 9 that it's our goal in our life to be found pleasing to Him. Jesus said, My sheep hear My voice. I know them. And what? They follow Me. That's the mark of Christ's sheep. They're followers of Christ. What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? Well, that means to model your life after him. This is the picture of, actually, he's the rabbi, and he has a group of young men that are his followers. Those are the disciples. That's who we become. We become a follower of Christ, and we want to follow the Master. Pattern our lifestyle after Jesus. This is the hallmark of the Christian. No wonder Paul says, and I rejoice over you. For your obedience is known to all, so I rejoice over you. So although he gives them this warning, it's it's not in vain. He knows they're going to listen, they're going to take it seriously. But he adds to it, he says, But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Let's pause here for a moment and think about what Paul is saying here. This is an important statement. It is said of Israel, in Jeremiah chapter 4, the prophet said this about the nation at that time. It was about to go into captivity, of the Babylonian captivity. That they were wise to do evil. Yeah, the exact reverse of what Paul says here about Christians. That Israel, in its apostate condition... At that time, was wise to do evil, but did not know how to do good. That's Jeremiah 4 and verse 22. Cross-reference there to give the exact opposite. As I was pondering this, I was thinking about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden. And God said, you can eat of any of the trees in the garden except this one. This is is the line that he gave our first parents. This is the test that he gave them to see if they were going to remain obedient to the Creator. We don't know how long they lasted in their state of innocence. Some people think they fell the first day of their creation. I don't believe that. I think there was a time lapse there, but it wasn't long before the enemy came 
as the serpent and brought the temptation. You all know the story of that, of course. So, God wanted them to know good and evil based on what He was going to tell them and teach them. Not to learn it through disobedience, because this was a test. That if they crossed that line, they would have the knowledge of good and evil. That's what this, the meaning of the tree is. That they would come to experience it. It's far, it was far better for man to know the difference between good and evil based on simple faith in the Word of God, what God would tell them, listen to Him, derive their understanding of each of those based on God's Word and not on experience. Now the devil turned this around in the temptation and he made them believe that actually the knowledge of good and evil is something God has and he's trying to keep this knowledge from you. You will be better off. You'll be like God if you eat and participate in the knowledge of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So he told them a lie. He told them that God was depriving them of something. I mean, think of the assault upon the character of the Creator by insinuating that, that God was withholding something that was a benefit to them. What a lie. What a destructive lie that they bought into. Well, we know what happened the moment they ate. They were filled with guilt and shame. And so much so that when they heard God coming toward them, they hid from Him. They wanted, they did not want to face Him. There was a, a terrible thing that came as a consequence. So, my point is, in going into this, is that it is... What Paul is saying here in that statement is he wants us to know good and evil as our first parents were to know it in their state of innocence. Be wise in the good, but be innocent in the evil. Don't participate. Do not experience evil because the experience of evil is a terrible thing in our life as Christians. And this is one of the ways the devil gets into the life of the believer is he he fogs the mind, fogs the judgment through a temptation that's very strong, very powerful. And the Christian loses sight. He, he, for a moment he loses his sense of judgment. And he falls for it. Because the thought of the guilt that's going to follow, that's not there. The devil, has, he's blocked that out. He's dressed up the temptation so powerfully that those thoughts overwhelm any thought of the consequences. But after the temptation is participated in and followed into the sin, then what happens? The guilt that comes over. Us and the shame and the experience of evil is something horrible and disastrous for us as Christians. 
Now, I totally understand why Paul says to them, be wise about what's good. And how are we wise about good? Well, what God tells us is good. What Jesus Christ has modeled for us is good. But have nothing to do with evil. Avoid it like the plague, because it's destructive. Now, in verse 20, Paul concludes this section, and I'm calling it a prophecy promise, and then a prayer, all in one verse. A prophecy promise. What do we mean by that? Well, look at what Paul says. The God of peace. I love all these expressions of the apostle about the nature of Yahweh and who he is to his people. Back in chapter 15, the God of hope. Over in 2 Corinthians 1, he's the God of all comfort. He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and so on. So, Paul is focused now on the God of peace. The God of shalom. The God who has restored the broken relationship between himself and man. He took the initiative to restore our relationship with him. We didn't take the initiative. We didn't take that move. Who who called out? Did, let me put it, did Adam call out, God, where are you in the garden? No, it wasn't God, it wasn't Adam who was seeking God. Adam, where are you? He came looking for us. That's the story of the Bible. That's what the Bible unfolds. God comes looking for man. man God comes to redeem man and restore that relationship. So here here is the God of peace. Now notice what he says. Who will soon crush Satan under your feet. The word soon is the idea quickly. He's going to do it. It's an idea of imminence. Now the second coming of Jesus is often spoken in those terms as well. But there's been 2,000 years that's lapsed since his first coming. Christ has still not come yet, yet he's coming quickly. And his reward is with him, the Bible says. The God of peace, there's tranquility there, and it's all, it's shalom. What is he going to do, this God of peace? He is going to soon crush Satan under your feet. You're going you're gonna to jump on top of the head of the devil and grind his head into the dirt. This is what Paul is saying. God is going to cast Satan under your feet and you're going to trample on him. Now, does, does that ring a bell? That, that idea? Whoa, what, does that jiggle something out of the Word of God? Does your mind go back to Genesis chapter 3? To the proto-evangelium. You ever heard that term? That's what theologians call Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. The proto-evangelium. The first promise of the gospel. Genesis 3.15. Because what is said there? The consequence of the fall of Adam and Eve brought judgment on the serpent, 
then on the woman, and then on the man. And God said to the serpent, this is to the serpent now, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Now think of this. This is a serpent that the devil himself, and we know this, Satan was there in the serpent. Revelation chapter 12 says that old serpent, the serpent who is the devil. And the last book of the Bible connects it. We know who was there actually doing this. So what is the idea of enmity? I'm just going to dwell on two things here out of Genesis 3.15. The idea of enmity means that there's going to be a state of hostility and hatred between the serpent and the woman and between the descendants or the seed of the serpent. The serpent's going to have a seed. The serpent's going to have a posterity. Who are they called in the Bible? The children of the devil. <laughs> yeah, children of the devil. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil. And then the woman and her seed, that's the godly line that culminates in the seed, the Lord Jesus Christ. So God is breaking an alliance here that kind of took place with the fall. When the woman ate, she kind of aligned herself with the serpent. She agreed with him. She kind of on his side against God, though she didn't realize that was what was happening. So God comes in in the judgment and he breaks that alliance between the serpent and the woman. He's going to put enmity now between them. This is what explains the persecution of Christians. That verse right there. Why does the world, why did the world hate Jesus without a cause and then hates his followers? It's because of Genesis 3.15, the enmity between the serpent and his seed and the woman and her seed, the hatred that's there. It explains spiritual warfare, why we have to deal with an enemy that we cannot see, who's smarter than us, who has more power than we do who has a strategy to trip us up in our life as a Christian. Now, the second word that I want you to focus on in Genesis 3.15 is, I will put in between you and the woman and your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, this is the idea that Paul brings out when he talks about the fact that God is going to crush Satan under your feet. So we're looking at the serpent who's become now a snake. That's the judgment on the serpent. The serpent apparently was an upright creature. And part of his judgment is he's now going to grovel in the dirt. He's going to slither around. So the serpent may have had legs before the fall. Now it's a snake. So we're dealing with a snake, a poisonous snake, spiritually speaking, whose head is going to be bruised. In the original, it means 
to be severely wounded, injured, fatally injured. If you stomp on the head of a snake, you have delivered a fatal blow to that animal. But what's going to happen in the process of delivering a fatal blow to the head of the snake, the person who does that, the seed of the woman, is going to get a very terrible wound in the heel of their foot. Now that we know when that happened, on the cross. Now his wound turned out to be a fatal wound as well. But death could not hold him. And he was resurrected three days later. But no doubt the devil was rejoicing during the time that Jesus was in the grave, thinking that he had conquered him. But in fact, Jesus Christ had conquered the devil. So this prophecy promise of verse 20 I believe Paul is reminding Christians of the fact of Genesis 3.15 and that they, as a church and as individual believers, members of the church, we share in the victory of the seed of the woman over the serpent. We share in his victory. When he conquered the devil, his people conquered the devil. And that is going to find its eschatological, for that big 50 cent word that means in the future, fulfillment in the hope of Revelation 20 and verse 10. Then shall the devil who deceived them be cast into the lake of fire where he shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. And that's the final doom of the devil. That's when he's finally crushed under the feet of the church when he's removed completely from God's universe. That day is coming. It's going to be amazing to witness that. We will witness that. We will see Satan cast into the lake of fire. Now he closes with this prayer. What a prayer it is. It's a common prayer of the apostle. He frequently uses it, but I want to reflect on it with you in closing. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul told us something about that grace when he said, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor that you through his poverty might be made rich. 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9. It is because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that we will conquer the devil, that we know victory spiritual, spiritually in our life. Paul He's totally, uh, it's all, in Paul's theology, it's all about the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5. The grace of the one man, in contrast to Adam. This is why there's triumph of good over evil. It's due entirely to one thing, the grace of Jesus Christ. 
And when he says, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Is there any other thing you would want to be with you in life beside that? That's the one thing that's going to endure into the eternal ages. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing else that we would want other than that. It's so beautiful. I love this prayer of the Apostle. It shed new light on it for me as I was preparing this sermon. As we are moving toward death and eternity every day of our journey, and we're closer now to our salvation than when we first believed, as he says in chapter 13, this is more precious than ever. I want the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to be with me, with every member of my family, now and forever. And I hope you have the same thought and feeling and desire as that. Nothing in this life is going to go with you to the grave. You're going to leave it all behind. Jan and I were talking about her mother's passing. We had her funeral yesterday up in Glendale at the Grandview Cemetery. It was outdoors. It was there where she's buried. Just our immediate family, about 20 people, children, grandchildren, uh, son and two daughters, my wife's family. And we celebrated Betty's life. My wife and her twin sister sang. I brought a message. And we were thinking about all of Betty's possessions that we knew when she lived up in that area, up in La Crescenta, a house full of beautiful furniture. And when she eventually was moved to the place where she passed away recently, she only had a closet with some clothes, a little jewelry box. I mean, she had nothing left. That's how it's going to be for all of us. We're going to leave it all behind But what do we want to go with us? Your car can't go with you. Your collections can't go with you. Your houses can't go with you. May the Lord Jesus Christ and His grace be with you forever. Amen. Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org.